Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together to open your word, to see what you'd have us to learn, to, to teach and instruct us, to, to guide and, and how to live in you. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh, that is Jesus, the enmity, even the law of the commandments, contained in ordinances for to make of in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof, and came and preached peace to you which were afar and which were nigh. For through him we both have access to, by one spirit unto the Father. So we're going to look at this because we're continuing on to what Jesus has done for us. And you know, when we get saved, most of us, when you get saved, don't know much at all about what you're being saved. You just, you've been told you're headed to hell, you deserve it, and you say, okay, I want Jesus in my heart. And it's great that the message is that simple, but when we think about all the things that happen when we're saved. You know, we, we just got done in the Tuesday class a couple months ago with the the 51 things that happen to us at the moment of salvation. And this is what a lot of Ephesians is all about, is what happened to us when we're saved. And we're looking at this in, in right now. And it says, Having abol abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, to, for to make of himself the twain one new man. Enmity. A word we don't use very often is a very strong word. It talks about the hatred between enemies. And have you ever really thought about this? That before we're saved, we are enemies of God. Enemies. Before we're saved, we are enemies. And he treats people as enemies. With all the, all the battles that are involved in it, there's a hatred. Jesus came to destroy the hatred. Why is there the hatred? Well, people go, well, God's all love. He, you know, it's not going to matter to him. Well, it is true that God is love. But that does not mean that God says we can do whatever we want, because that's not really love. If you love, you know, for parents, when we love our children, we don't say, okay, well, go play in the play. You know, you want to play in the freeway, go ahead. I, you know, I love you, so I'm not going to put any rules. No, if we love them, we're going to say, you're not playing in the street, busy street. You're not you know, you're not going to go play in the cave with the bear. You're not going to, you know, we do everything we can to say, no, we love you, so we are not. And the kids go, oh, you're just trying to ruin my fun. Well, no, we're trying to keep them alive. Okay? God's love does not say, well, just go do whatever you want. Because that's not really love. But he's also, but more importantly, he is righteous. He is holy. He demands holiness. He demands righteousness. And he, being righteous and holy, can't just say, oh, well, it's no big deal. I'm just going to ignore it. And he's a good judge. He's an honest judge. All of us know that if somebody stands up before the go to court and somebody stands up in the court and says, well, Your Honor, I, I did kill this guy, but I've been a really good guy. It's the only thing I've ever done wrong. And the judge said, okay, you know, you're free. That's not a good judge. You know, because being good most of the time is not a defense when you do something wrong. And God's the same way with us. He says, no, you're not good because you have sinned. 
And that sin demands just judgment. And that sin demands the punishment of hell. And so Jesus came to, I love this, it says abolish in the King James. It says that he came to abolish in his flesh the enmity. And abolish in Greek literally means to deprive of power. He came so that God's enmity would be deprived of its power. He paid the price. He paid the price. And every once in a while you run across somebody that will go, well, how can one person pay the price for everybody? Now, because it, you, know, you figure one, one to one is usually the, the standard, isn't it? But in the days past, when two armies came together, quite often the generals would just get together in the middle and they say, well, why don't we just pick a champion or a group of guys and we'll let them fight it out and the winner takes all. You know, we won't, we won't, we won't hazard the lives of the tens or 20,000. We'll just put, you know, the lives of a few together. We see that in, the, in David and David, the story of David and Goliath. Goliath standing out there saying, hey, send somebody and the winner, the winner of this battle is the winner of the war. Okay, and that's probably the most famous one of all. In 2 Kings, you read about Joab and Abner, the generals of Israel, of, uh, Israel and, and, uh, and uh, Judah, and they get together and they say, hey, you know, we got a battle going on here, but rather than, you know, we'll just let, let the boys have, you know, they said, let the boys have some sport is what they said, but they meant, put, and they put about eight or nine guys together and, they, and that was their battle. And the winner won the war. And it wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for that to happen. Rather, especially before standing armies, because these armies weren't, you know, we think of them, they say, well, oh, we got an army. Well, the army was every farmer that you could gather in your, in your neighborhood. And you brought them all to war. You didn't have an army, you know, you didn't have warriors. You had, you had a handful of warriors and then you had farmers. And that's why far, you know, battles were fought at a very specific time because it was the farmers, and you wanted the farmers to farm their land during the harvest time, but then you'd have the war <laughs> outside of the time the growing season was. And, but Jesus is in this position. He paid the price. God said, okay, I'll let you take the punishment for all sin. All sin fell upon Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like? He's on the cross, perfect. He's been perfect for eternity. And all of a sudden, all the sin of the world is placed on him. Every sin from Adam and Eve to the last person who sins when the, when the world is destroyed, placed on Jesus. And he did this willingly. He did it without complaint and just said, yes, Father, I'll do it. And the father ended up having to turn his back on him because of the sin that, because he became sin. Why did he do that? So that he could make us one with the father. Destroy the enmity of the father has toward us. So that we, as the enemies of God, could come to him and say, Father, as we talked about last week. It's an amazing thing that happened when we look at this. Enemies become friends in a single prayer. A single prayer of accepting the gift of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we move from being the enemy of God to being a friend. More than just a friend, part of his family. He adopts us into his family. That's a powerful concept when we get hold of it. 
And it says that he was made the two one. This is important for us because we are called the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And in the picture of a marriage, if you go back all the way to Genesis, it says, Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve came together and they became one. They became one in spirit and soul. They're joining together, became one. And the marriage is a picture of two people becoming one in God's sight. This is why he hates divorce. Because it literally says in Genesis and other places that they are glued together. The two are glued together. And if you've ever done any kind of woodwork and you use really good wood glue, and you try to tear the boards apart, it does not break at the glue. Okay, and I don't know if you've ever tried to do that or have seen it, but if you try to pull glue that's cured right and it's good glue, you pull it apart, it splinters the boards and destroys both boards. So you never want to tear it back apart. And this is true of just any good glue, and it's, it's true of even when you weld metal. You, you know, the weld usually holds, and the metal around it will break down before the weld does. When God says the two, two come together, it's a permanent linking together. And we, and we want to be able to see that, that, that gluing together. And, and Jesus says he brought us together. He took two, the enemy in his flesh, and brought them together. And it says here that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof. The cross, the power of the cross that paid for sin. Jesus did not have any sin in his life. He did not deserve to be killed. Matter of fact, the wages of sin is death. He could not have been killed until he became death for us because he had done nothing that deserved death. He went to the cross, died, paying the price that he didn't owe. I want to really stress that. He didn't owe it. We owed it. And it was a debt we couldn't pay. You know, and I, I have fun when, I love it when people go, well, I'm just going to try to be good enough, and when I stand before God, I'll just say I was good. Sorry, you weren't good enough. You, know, you did not earn, you did not make enough payments into the bank of goodness to be accepted because we can't do it. We can't do it. Isaiah tells us that all our righteousness is filthy rags. So even when we do good stuff, God looks at it and says, okay, and, and what, what else do you have for me? It's like when we're a parent and we accept a gift from our children that they made as a little child. Now, now we treasure it because it was given to us by our kids, but it is definitely not a masterpiece, is it? <laughs> for most kids. You know, uh, it is not the greatest construction, construction that, is that you've ever seen when, it's, when your four-year-old gives you this glued together pile of sticks <laughs> and says, this is whatever it is. <laughs> you know, that would be, that's what trying to do things our own way to please God is. God, here's my three-year-old picture. Here's my three-year-old structure. I hope it's good enough to get me into heaven. And God's going to laugh because it's not even close. Because nothing we can do will earn heaven. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, and he's going to make us one with him. And, he's, and I love this next verse. It goes, and he came and preached peace. Jesus came and preached peace. I've given you the definition of peace before. I'm going to give it to you again because it's a really great definition. 
It's the tranquil state of the soul, assured of its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God, is content with its earthly lot, whatever it is. Peace. A very powerful statement when you listen to this statement. To be content with whatever you have. And Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and with little. And the question for us, are we content if we have little? For most people, the answer is no. Are you content when, you're, when you seem to be stricken with diseases and hurt, hurts and pains? For a lot of people, the answer is no. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be happy about any of that stuff. If you're happy, there's something else wrong with you. But contentment, saying, OK, God, you're in control. I understand it. I'm going to accept it. Because for one thing, there's not much we can do about a lot of things that happen to us. When we get struck with diseases and pains, especially as we get older, I wake up in the morning now and I just don't jump out of bed like I did when I was younger, and I know it'll be even less the older I get. That, but I remember I used to be you'd jump out of bed and start, start running into my day. Now it's like, okay, sit up, okay, that, that hurt. Get up, get into the shower, get rid of most of the pain, and get ready to go. But I'm content. I'm still alive. God's still got something for me to do. And I love it. I love that he's got something to do, and I know that he's in control. And when I have a lot to have to get done, he'll, he'll give me a more pain-free pain day than, than other days. Or I'll just work through the pain one way or the other. But you know, God doesn't want us to stop just because serving him just because there's a little bit of pain, there's a little bit of sickness, there's a little bit of effort into it. And I've told the story many times. Every age has its reason not to serve God. <laughs> you know, children are just so busy being children, and you know, if they can't, you know, parents don't take them to church, and they don't go to church. You know, they probably have the best reason not to go if their parents don't come. <laughs> Teenagers, they're just busy. <laughs> now, when you get into the college age or the young adult starting your career, you're busy. <laughs> and and you'll hear it from those people. Well, when I'm older, I'll serve God. <laughs> when I've got everything. You get into about 30 or 40 and you're building, you're in the midst of your career, you're trying to make it into management or whatever, you're building, you're getting your business started. And oh, well, I'm still busy. You get even older and it's the grandkids that are taking up all your times, you know, just before you retire. And then you get retired and you've got grandkids and you're sick. You know, and tired and, and just don't have the energy. Every age has a reason not to serve God. The question is, will you serve him? Is he Lord and Savior? Is he Master? Will you make time for Jesus? And it really means making time for Jesus. We make time for whatever's important for us. Look at your life and say, what do I make time for? And that'll tell you what's important in your life. And for many years, I was, I was a football fanatic. I made time to watch every football game. Did I have time to watch every football game? No, but I, wa I made time to watch every football game. You know, and you look at this, it could be your craft that you're into. It could be an activity that you're into. What do you spend, what do you make time for? And is God part of what you make time for? And that's not, not criticizing anybody. It's asking you to really look at your life and say, is he somebody that you make time for? Because there's always an excuse not to. There's always an excuse not to open your Bible in, each morning and read it. There's always an excuse not to go before God in prayer. There's always excuses not to go to other Bible studies. <laughs> There's always excuses 
to go, go to church on Sunday. Everybody who's here comes here every week. It's a habit for you to come to Sunday, uh, come to Sunday morning service. But I can guarantee, when I was young with, with, with the four little kids, it got to be very hard sometimes to get to service. Because it would inevitably, one of the kids would mess their clothes up just before it was time to walk out the door. And when there was a baby, it would, would end up with a messy diaper right before it was time to walk out. Uh, there's so many odd times when, when there would be a fight between my wife and I just before it was time to go to church. God, Satan likes to do that, you know. Okay, I'm going to church, and there's this fight all the way to church, and then you paste on your smiley face and say everything's all good and happy, but you're not listening, you're not paying attention to what's going on. You're not in the mood because you haven't prepared your heart. All these things, and this is the spiritual battle that goes on. Satan does not want people to be in church. We've talked about that it, church isn't the end all. Okay. Can you worship God without coming to church? Yes, you can. Do it, does everybody who says they're worshiping God on Sunday without going to church worshiping God? Most of them aren't. Because we need one another to draw out the spirit and talk about what's been going on in our life, to be sharing. I can tell you one thing that I have seen in, in the years that I've walked with God. If you're not coming to church or a Bible study sometime during the week, within six, to, six months to, to a year, you're probably not even going to be following God at all. It's just the way it is. And you may say, okay, I'm reading my Bible every day. I'm listening to these pastors on the radio. But within time, you will stop. Because little things will come up. Well, I'm just going to sleep in. I'm a little tired because I can read my Bible whenever I get up. And then you get up and to the phone call ringing, giving you something to do. You never do get to the Bible. You never do get to the listening. And you can come to, and the flip side of that, you can come to church all the time. You can come to church every time the doors are opened and still not be following God because all you're doing is following him because that's what you have to do. You have to come to church with the right attitude. I'm going to hear the word of God. I'm going to talk to people about the word of God. I'm going to share the, I'm going to hear God's word preached. I'm going to learn something. I told somebody the other day, they go, well, I can't ever go to a church where the pastor doesn't know more than I do. And I'm going, you know what? I, wherever I go to church, I'm going to learn from that person who's speaking in the front because God's speaking through them. Well, I can get a great big wow and this is wonderful. No, but I'll learn something. I always have learned something from anybody who speaks in, in the front because God is speaking. And as long as they're speaking and God is speaking, you'll learn. The Holy Spirit will touch you. And it's important for us to be there. The church and the body is a great place to come because there's a teacher that teaches. Whatever church it is you go to, the teacher is teaching you. And you get into his word and challenge you to get into his word. And share what God is showing you. Because it's so important. Because I tell you, it's so easy. When I slipped away from church, it was just that situation. I got busy at work and, and all these, I had all these reasons, but I did. I was working 80 hours a week and the last thing I wanted to do was go to church on Sunday morning. I, and I, I spent two weeks sleeping in, nobody called me. And then I got into a pity party. And the next thing you know, it was two years before and I hadn't been in church. And I've shared with you, if I had been told that when I was in my teens, I would have told him, you're absolutely crazy. There's no way I'll ever stop going to church. And it's so simple. It's so easy. If we don't make it a habit to do something, Satan can get in. He can make the change. You know, and it is so wonderful when you're in God to, to just tell people about him. Share, people, share with people about Jesus. Share the, share the good news, the gospel. The peace. You know, the, one, the most wonderful thing about us as Christians is the peace that we have. 
The peace that passes understanding that I can be content no matter what's going on. Why can I be con content? Is because I know God's in control. When God's in control, I don't have to worry about anything. You know, if, if you have a problem with worry, start learning to be content. You know, I, I know people, if they're not worrying about themselves, they're worrying about everybody else. They just have to worry. Worry is destructive to your health. It's destructive to your, to your life. And it doesn't do a bit of good. Because they say 90% of what we worry about doesn't happen. And the 10% that we, does happen, we can't do anything about anyway. So we wasted a lot of time and effort worrying. Does that mean we don't prepare? No, we prepare. You should be preparing for retirement. You should be preparing for you know, different things. But don't go worrying about it. Don't put it in the forefront of everything. And just learn to be content. And it says, you preach to those that were near, afar off, and those that were nigh. And we look at that and you say, well, what the heck is Peter talking about? Those who are far off, he's talking about Gentiles. They don't know anything about God. Those who are near, the Jews. They know about God. They may not know him, but they know about God. And the message of peace was preached to both because they both needed it. And we would say, if you've ever met a Christian who goes to church all the time, but they don't know God, they don't know God. They're just not at peace. They're just resting. They're just, they're, they're, they know God. They could tell you all the Bible stories. They may know the Bible stories better than most of the people because they grew up in church. But they never asked Jesus to come into their heart and be their Lord and Savior. And I've shared with you this woman that we talked to when her husband was going to be a deacon, and we asked her, when did you ask Jesus into your heart? And her answer was a very sad answer. I've always been better than everybody I know. She based her entire existence of going to heaven on her goodness. And we asked her, well, when did you realize you were a sinner and needed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And her answer came back, I've always been better than everybody I know. And this poor woman was a very wonderful woman. She came to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and any other Bible study that was opened up. You looked at her, and you, if you didn't know her intimately, you'd say, well, this is a good Christian. Look how often she comes to church. But I had already talked to her before that. I had the feeling that she was not saved, and her answer confirmed that she was not saved. She had never, because we definitely asked her, when did you realize you were a sinner? And she never acknowledged that. And that's one problem with growing up in a church. A lot of people who grow up in a church seem to think that they're not really sinners. They may say, well, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've sinned, I deserve, I deserve, but they don't realize that they are sinners because God doesn't have this little curve that says, if all you do is tell white lies, you're okay. You know, you're better than the murderers and the thieves. God says, no, you both sin, you both deserve punishment. And we've got to come up to that. The person who's sinned a lot by earthly standards deserves hell. Those who don't sin a lot by earthly standards deserves hell. Because they've sinned. And Jesus is saying, I've got a gift for you. I paid for your sin. Whether great or little, I've paid for your sin so that you can be one with the Father. The power of that statement, the power of what he did. None of us deserves heaven. None of us deserves what Jesus did. None of us deserves salvation. We all were enemies of God. And he came and said, 
I've got it. I've got your gift for you. Yeah. I, heard, I heard a little skit on the radio just the other day. There was this guy, this, this woman and her husband sitting at the dinner table with his friend, and they're going, well, how much do we owe you for the dinner? They go, well, no, we invited you to dinner. Well, yeah, well, we need to know how much it costs so we can give you your tip. And they go, no, you were invited. <laughs> yeah. How would you feel if somebody was sitting there trying to pay you for a dinner you invited them to come to? It's like, we just got to know how much we got to pay you. We, we didn't deserve this. You know, but most of us try to do that with God. God, how much do I owe you for my salvation? How many times do I have to go to church to earn this? How many times do I have to read my Bible to earn, you know, to pay you back? And he's saying, you can't. It's a free gift. You cannot pay it back. You cannot pay it enough. And we look at this, and that's what Jesus said about this. He's going to make us one. And it says in the last verse, for through him we both have access in the Spirit to the Father. Those who are near, those who are somewhat righteous, those who are totally unrighteous, both have the same access to God. The big sinner, the little sinner, it doesn't matter, they're both sinners, they don't deserve God, and yet Jesus says, I paid the price, you can have access to the Father. Do we totally, we've talked about this now three weeks in a row, do we totally understand what access to the Father means? You, know, you go talk to some of these people that aren't Christians and ask them how to get to heaven. Almost every single one of them say, well, I'm never, not sure that I'm going to get to heaven because I've got to do more good than bad. I don't know if I've done enough good. Muslims don't know what it takes to get to heaven. The only way you can be guaranteed of heaven in the Muslim faith is to go be a suicide bomber. Kill yourself. And according to the Quran, that, that guarantees you heaven. Or some version of heaven. But that's the only way they know for sure. And that's why it's not hard for the Muslims to find suicide bombers. Because that's the only way they can be assured of going to heaven. Other than that, it's do more good than bad. And Allah is not a loving person. So you better do an overwhelming number of good things than bad, because if it's even close, he's going to say goodbye, because he doesn't have love for his, his, his flock. We've got to be able to understand this. This is important for us to understand. Access to the Father is a critical difference for Christianity. We have access to God. We go before the throne room of God. We get to call him Abba or Daddy. We have an access to him that's, that nobody else has. We know we're going to go to heaven if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We're not wondering, are we going? If he is our Lord and Savior, because of his gift, he, we have eternal life. And that's wonderful for us to be able to grab hold of and say, this is my assurance. I am assured of heaven. I don't know how much witnessing you all have done on the street or with your family, but I hear so many times, well, you just can't know you're going to heaven. You, know, you just can't know it. Well, the Bible tells me I can know it. The Bible tells me you can know it. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are going to heaven. If you've rejected him, you are going to hell. There's only, there's only two answers. And we have that access. You go to, you talk to Mormons, and Mormons are the same way. They've got to do lots of good works, otherwise they can't go to heaven. You talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they've got to do lots of good works or they're not going to go to heaven. And they're not going to make part of the 144,000, which is going to heaven. And if they're not good enough, they won't live on earth for eternity while the rest are destroyed. 
That's their beliefs. But it all is based on do a lot of good things. And you know, it's really sad that most Christians have a hard time going out sharing the gospel because they know we're under grace. Whereas all these other groups, they have no trouble getting people to work, but the reason they're working is totally wrong. They're working so they can try to get to heaven. And it's sad that they work hard to get to heaven, and we, as Christians, we go, well, we just don't care, God, you know. Somehow people will get saved. Somehow somebody will, you know, somebody will tell them, and it's not going to be me, but somebody. We need to share. And every time I talk about this, I get people saying, well, I just don't know what to say. Just tell what happened to you. you know, I've shown you how easy the gospel is. Everyone has sinned. <laughs> you know, it's not hard to convince somebody they've sinned. Sin deserves to be punished. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus came and paid for, for the sin. Do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You know, the last step is one most people forget. <laughs> They do a good job of telling somebody they're a sinner. They, they do a good job of telling them that, that they deserve punishment. They'll even do a good job telling them that Jesus died for their sin, but they won't ask them if they'd like to become a Christian. It's like a salesman trying to sell you a car. You went to the lot to buy a car, and he got you all ready for a sale, and then he walks away and doesn't say, do you want to buy the car? Uh, or... So we want to be able to do this. We want four points on, a, on, a, on a, the gospel message. You are a sinner. You deserve punishment. Jesus paid for it. Do you want to become a believer? Just ask him, you know, confess your sins and ask him into your heart. Simple. Anybody can do it. Any child can give this message. And I've shared with you, when I first got saved, I went out that week and I told everybody about being a Christian. I didn't know anything at 10 years old about, other than I said a prayer. And you know what? I didn't even remember the prayer that I had said when I was telling my friends. So my answer was, I don't know. Come to church with me on Sunday. We'll, you know, the bus pulls up right here at whatever time it was. And, you know, and I told you, we had like 20 people standing outside waiting to get on the bus that Sunday morning. The poor bus driver and bus captain were like, what's going on here? But we want to be able to say the gospel message What's the worst thing that can happen? And I've shared this with you. They ask you a question you don't know. I say, worst thing? That's the best thing that can happen. We've covered that. I don't know the answer to that, but let me go find the answer, or let me bring you to somebody that will have the answer. You're guaranteed a second time to sit down with them and share the gospel because you didn't know the answer. And so you get to go talk to them two times instead of one. I mean, what a blessing that is. And all it is is because you didn't know the answer. Because you know what? You're never going to know the answer to every single thing that they're going to ask, that people can ask you. I've been studying God for 44 years and studying heavily on different topics, and I still don't know the answer to every single question. I know the answer to most of the questions they ask. But every once in a while, I'll have to say, you know what? That's a good question. I'm going to have to go study on that one. And I'll, how about if I talk to you in two days or three days or, or next week or whatever it might be, and I'll have that answer for you. It's not a problem. It gives you a second time to talk to them. Now, the more you do it, the more answers you have because you know the questions they're going to ask. Because I tell you, the questions are always the same. But very rarely is there a question that is out of the blue, uh, you know, an unusual. The questions that, you know, you start witnessing to somebody and after two or three years of experience, you'll know just about everything they're going to ask you. 
and they're not going to stump you very often. But the key is open your mouth and share the gospel. People need to know God. He is the, Jesus is the only way to heaven. We need to share that with people. Because the last thing you want to do is somebody that you know, a friend or family, die and you haven't told them about Jesus. That would be an awful place to be in, to know that they're in hell because you never even, and you never even opened your mouth. Very important for us to, to go and, and challenge with that because they would need access to the Father as well as we do. And the Holy Spirit will lead and guide you in all of what you discuss and, and talk about. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we come before you, and Lord, first off, we ask that you help us to understand the preciousness of our salvation, the honor that we have of serving you, the fact that you've given us the opportunity to share the gospel, to share with people the good news and the peace that you have. Lord, we thank you for all of that. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has not accepted you, we ask that they just do that now. Simple prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. You paid for it. Please come into my life. Those kind of words, simply said, spoken and believed, will get you into heaven. And I just want to challenge everybody else, Lord, and Lord, just convict people if they have not been opening their mouth to share the gospel, that they will boldly speak the four statements that are all part of the gospel and give their testimony of how you've changed their life. And we just thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.